everyone. Welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the show, thanks for joining us today. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I'm here, as usual, with Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist, a best-selling author, and he's also my dad. So, Dad, how are you doing today? I'm really good, and I'm very happy that we're going to be talking with Dan Harris, who I've just had a lot of respect for for a long time. If you're listening to a podcast like ours, you're probably already familiar with Dan. For 21 years, he worked as an anchor and correspondent for ABC News, where he hosted shows like Nightline and Good Morning America. And after having a nationally televised panic attack on GMA in 2004, Dan gave meditation a try, which led to his New York Times bestseller, 10% Happier. And these days, as I said, he's the host of the top podcast by the same name and the co-founder of the 10% Happier Meditation app. So Dan, thanks for doing this with us. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. It is so cool to be doing this because I've heard your voice through my earbuds so frequently. And so actually talking to you is pretty cool. And I wanted to start just by asking you, you mentioned on social media a little while ago that a few months ago, you actually had a resurgence of panic attacks. So I just wanted to start by asking, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Just I'm in a, I'm doing this from a hotel room and I had to take an elevator up to the hotel room and panic for me generally comes from one of two sources public speaking or claustrophobia. And there was a period of time where I would have taken the stairs, not long ago, I would have taken the stairs, eight flights with my luggage because I was so petrified of elevators and airplanes and things like that. Out of the blue, really out of the blue. I had some history of claustrophobia for sure, but not like this where I was just not functional. Hmm. But I did a bunch of what's called exposure therapy, where you kind of gently and systematically expose yourself to the thing you don't want to be exposed to. So in this case, I would ride an elevator at the Westchester Mall with my shrink for an hour at a time. And it really helped. Uh, at, At the beginning, to get on an airplane, I needed medication. Now I don't. And now I don't have any trouble getting on elevators, et cetera, et cetera. So the bad news here is that if you've got panic or high anxiety, you know, you never know. It could come back even if you're a quasi-meditation guru. The good news is that it's treatable. Yeah. For people in general listening, you're talking about doing graduated exposure, starting with relatively easy and then moving all the way up. And it's a standard protocol, as you well know. And so I wondered if you could talk about how you resourced yourself and how your shrink resourced you or helped you resource yourself so you could tolerate those exposures and, you know, get used to them and then move on to the next level of exposure, the resourcing yourself part. How'd you do that? One thing is, you know, this the external resource, which I'm very lucky to have had to be able to afford a shrink who can, who does this. So I don't take that for granted. The other part of that is that any qualified mental health professional who's going to get somebody exposed to something that that is terrifying to them is going to do it very gradually. So, okay, Dan, we're going to get in this elevator, but we're going to go one floor and then we're getting off and we're going to resettle and talk about it. And so the combination of being with somebody I trusted and only doing one floor, I would practice on my own, but I would often bring my wife and or my eight-year-old son. And that was very comforting. Yeah. When I was getting back on planes at the beginning, you know, I would have one of them with one or both of them with me. So those were some resources. But then, of course, many years of meditation was extremely helpful. You know, there, there are ways in which having a heightened capacity for mindfulness can actually make it scarier at yeah. the beginning because you you're more aware of your fear, your fear, you have yeah. greater self-awareness so you can feel the fear more acutely there are as i mean i I suspect listeners to this show will know that there there's mindfulness which is one whole set of practices that comes down through the buddhist Mm -hmm. tradition for 2600 years and in the mindfulness boom of the last decade or so which i've shared some blame for mindfulness has gotten an enormous amount of attention but largely divorced from the greater context of Buddhism, where you get an ethical component, which includes training in compassion. Yeah. And that those compassion exercises, the compassion meditation, which literally boosts your capacity for warmth, 
are extremely helpful in a in a time like this and that warmth or compassion that you're training through these mm. practices it's omnidirectional it's meant to apply to you too so having the capacity to talk to myself in a different way to put my hand on my heart or my chest and be like dude you're fine there is no real danger here this is your brain misreading the signals having those skills it was just incredibly useful as i was going through this that's really great um, there's this model in healthcare and psychology you probably know a stress diathesis model it basically means that the bigger our challenges the bigger our resources need to be also challenges and vulnerabilities challenges wear on us through our vulnerabilities and so as a clinician i would just say that usually the situation i encounter when someone walks in my door is that their challenges and vulnerabilities are bigger than their resources. And we need to look for ways. One of them preeminently is, of course, inner practices like meditation and compassion cultivation to build up resources of different kinds to meet those challenges. So you, you gave us a great example here, right, of that general process. How do you feel about the ways in which, as many have critiqued, that mindfulness in a secular frame has been extracted from that spiritual tradition, which has a moral component to it, and teachings related to it, but just being extracted as a practice um, these days. How do you feel about that? My feelings are complex. I mean, generally speaking, I think the critique is accurate in many ways. I'm dedicating a lot of energy myself to addressing some of those concerns. Uh, how? So let me, I, I'll say a little bit about that in a second, but let me first say that while I think the critique is accurate, I actually am not sure it's as problematic as the folks leveling the criticisms mm, feel it is. Yeah. I think it is problematic in some ways. And I think there's been enormous benefit that has come from taking mindfulness practices and making them appealing to secular folks and skeptics or people from other religious backgrounds who wouldn't meditate if, if it were recast as a kind of exercise for the brain. And I think that has helped so many people. It has allowed for a massive explosion in scientific research because once you secularize mm. and, and, and turn these ancient forms of meditation into a sort of a replicable protocol, the way John Kabat-Zinn did famously with mindfulness-based stress reduction, that allowed for a, this incredible boom uh, in research. And that research has enabled people like me who weren't, you know, I didn't have any native interest in Buddhism to embrace this practice. So I think so much good has come out of yeah. this secularization. John doesn't like that term, but, <laughs> but it, I think it's accurate. Nonetheless, so much good has come. And also it's complicated. You know, I, I believe that when people talk about cultural appropriation, well, there, there's some truth to that. And when they talk about the fact that a non-trivial amount of important material is lost when you just focus on one aspect of an ancient and massively complex and massively beneficial tradition, something is lost. And so what's also happened is that you have people like Richie Davidson and, and Thupten Jinpa who are trying to popularize secular versions of the compassion meditation and that whole set of practices, which are often left out of the conversation. I think that is really helpful. And I think we should just, for somebody like me, who's out there popular, doing his best to popularize meditation is to not hide the ball on Buddhism. I, I am consider myself to be a Buddhist and I don't want to take the credit away from the people who deserve it. Mm. And they were geniuses who happened to reside on the Indian subcontinent 2,600 years ago. So I'm wondering about your own adventure with this over time, Dan, because as you said, you, you started on the more fidgety skeptic side of the spectrum with, I would imagine, the, the practices, what made the practices accessible to you, as you said, is that they had that slant, is that they could be presented in that kind of way. And then over time, it feels like you've been drawn more and more towards these uh, compassion practice, meta practice, whatever it is that you're doing, that are more tied to the the earlier Buddhist tradition or Buddhism as a whole. How did that process happen for you? Like, what did it look like for you over time? And what is it about the maybe less skeptical aspects of it, or the more attached to that earlier tradition parts that have become like more accessible for you over time? I mean, what's interesting is skepticism is wholly 
compatible yeah, with Buddhism. I'm right there with you. The Buddha, as you both know, said, do not take anything I'm saying at face value. Come and see for yourself. Yeah. Literally those words, yeah. come see for yourself. Ehi pasako, I believe, is the phrase in the ancient language of Pali, which in which the Buddhist teachings were written down. And if any Buddhist scholars are listening to this, I apologize in advance for <laughs> any times where I stray away from complete factual accuracy but that's my understanding of yeah as somebody who's sat through a lot of dharma talks that's uh, my understanding of how it went down and i continue to believe that i am a skeptical person yeah and i don't think that that is a problem vis-a-vis -vis buddhism insidious doubt about everything is a is the flip side of that coin or sort of you might call it a, to use sort of buddhist lingo the near enemy and that that i think is a, a quagmire potentially internally but what happened to me was, to answer the question you actually asked me, was that I got interested in meditation after having had the panic attack on television. And at first, I really didn't want any of the Buddhist stuff at all. And I just wanted the secular science-based stuff. And I think that just the, the, the more I learned about Buddhism, the more I learned that it was absolutely congenial, that material, to a modern materialistic evidence, somebody desirous of evidence person and uh, that buddhism is itself is just this utterly fascinating incredibly complex and uh, multi-layered uh, tradition and that increasingly the claims of the buddha and the practices that he and his followers have come up with are being studied by scientists and the results are very very interesting how I present myself now, it's a, it's a bit tricky, you know, like I, I when I'm talking to naive audiences, you know, people who are new to meditation, I really do want to appeal to the skeptics because I, I can still cast interpolate back to that mindset. And yeah. I want to make sure that I serve those people. And but at the same time, I want to be open about the fact that I'm not skeptical about meditation anymore. And so that that's a bit of a fine line I try to walk and not always successfully. Would you be willing to say what you do currently when you meditate? And why? Sure. Everything's always changing. So one's meditation yeah. practice tends to change. I would say that it's a mix of metta or loving kindness, compassion practice, and straight up mindfulness, Buddhist mindfulness practices. I've been really influenced by two teachers, one I've met and know very well, and another who I've not met. Joseph Goldstein is been my teacher for a long time, 12, 13 years, and I have a great relationship with him. And I go on retreat with him, you know, once or twice a year. And, and he, he's amazing. And then there's a Buddhist, uh, a Burmese master, Sayada Utejaniya. Uh -huh. He has a student named Alexis Santos, who uh, Alexis has been quite influential for me. And Tejaniya's style is more relaxed. So Tejaniya's critique of a lot of the hardcore Buddhist styles of practice is that people wash up on uh, at his center in Burma, you know, burnt out. Uh, they've been just over efforting. And I think that, I don't think that's true for necessarily for everybody. But for some people, it, you can just try too hard. And that was what was happening for me for years. I was just pushing too hard, striving too hard, rebelling at, against being at a retreat or rebelling against my daily practice because I was trying to get somewhere, even though I knew I shouldn't try to get somewhere. I just we just fall into that trap over and over again. And Tejaniya's style really is based around these three phrases, which is, are you aware or am I aware? Instead of just maniacally noting your breath or noting whatever, or doing an open awareness practice where you're noting whatever comes up, just asking this question once in a while, are you aware? Are you awake? Are you just mindful of whatever's happening right now? He uses this metaphor of it's like pushing a kid on a swing. Just push. And then there's some mm -hmm. free floating and then you push again. So you do that phrase once in a while and then you drop in another phrase. What's the attitude in the mind right now? I think of this as like shining a black, I'm in a hotel room right now as this interview is going on. And you may remember those famous primetime ABC News reports where Chris Cuomo, my then colleague, uh, went into hotel rooms and shined black light all over the place and saw all these disgusting substances all over, you know, all over the hotel room. And that's a little bit like what happens when, for me at least, when you ask yourself, what's the attitude in my mind right now? You see, oh yeah, I'm wanting something or I'm not wanting something, I'm trying to make something happen. And so it's just great to see that and then try to let it go. It'll come back, of course for most of us. And then the third phrase is, this is nature. <laughs> this mm. this deep-seated human tendency to 
take what's happening in the mind personally, but it's just nature. It's, it's just that we're on the cusp of a wave in an unfathomably large ocean of causes and conditions dating all the way back to the Big Bang and maybe before. And so everything that's happening right now is just a natural process that's unfolding. And can you see it in that way? The way I understand Tejini's teachings, and again, I've never met the guy, but is to cycle through these phrases. So often what I do is in my daily practice is I'll sit and do a couple of rounds of loving kindness practice, which for those who are not familiar with it is you basically just systematically envision a bunch of people in your life, ranging from easy people to difficult people, and send them phrases like maybe happy, safe, healthy, live with ease. And that's a great way to settle the mind. It's actually traditionally a concentration practice. So I'll do a couple of rounds of that, and then I'm pretty concentrated. And then I'll move into the more open, relaxed, Tejaniya-style mm-hmm. practice. Um, and if I get lost... I will just go back to a more concentration practice. And if I'm falling asleep, I'll just get up and do it while I'm walking. What helped you sustain your practice over time? Because a lot of people start, but they are unable to develop the habit of it. I mean, that's really hard, starting and maintaining a practice. Yeah. So I have a bunch of things to say about that. But in terms of me, there's a double-edged sword in my personality, which is that I am stubborn. Mm. And that means that if I set myself a task, it's highly unlikely that I will give up. It also means I'm a gigantic pain in the ass and that I <laughs> can sometimes lack the humility to admit when I'm wrong. And that's the thing I've really worked on. Yeah. So that stubbornness is good and bad. And part of the good aspect of it is that I got really interested in meditation. Immediately I knew, okay, yeah, this is not hippie nonsense. This is potentially really helpful to me. And so I I don't know that I've missed a day in well over a decade, even if it's just doing a little bit. But I'm a highly unusual in this way. And, and for most people, it's really hard to start and maintain a habit. The vast majority of people struggle with this. And um, what we know from the research around behavior change is that it really helps to start small. And so I often tell people, you know, one minute counts. And, you know, aim for daily-ish. And I think that's a a great way to get started. I think a lot of people grapple with how to balance being true to what they care about and also true maybe to their nature as a stubborn, tenacious, you know, I'm kind of tenacious to a fault, uh, as Forrest knows. Uh, How to balance that and those qualities of drive, which can get incorporated into the biology of craving, including in subtle ways, how to balance that and the benefits that come from that work ethic, let's say, with you know a deeper understanding of things like equanimity, inner peace, and non-attachment. And you're kind of a poster child, you know, for somebody who's grappled with that balance. And I, I wonder how that's unfolded in your life and kind of what you've learned about that maybe to offer to others too. It has unfolded uh, poorly and unsuccessfully. So if you've got an answer, <laughs> I'm open to hearing it. Uh, it's one of the biggest, you know, points of sort of dynamic tension in my life is I am wired and conditioned through the culture, capitalism, you know, our ideas of masculinity, all this stuff uh, to be super hard charging, stubborn, tenacious, to use your words, probably a nicer word. And uh, that is not an attitude that often serves me well in meditation. Because it's a weird video game, meditation is, where if you want to move forward, you can't move forward. Yeah. <laughs> so you you have to surrender to whatever's happening right now. That's it. Just continuously just letting it be what it is. So I think it's about channeling the tenacity and ardor in the service of letting go, if you can figure that out. You know, I've had moments where in meditation where I have had very few where like real equanimity or well, for me, real equanimity has set in. And I realized like the only safe place from which to interact with reality is of mindfulness, of not wanting, not pushing away, seeing clearly. And it seems so obvious in a moment like that, where it's like, oh yeah, all the chatter in my mind has, or the chatter in my mind has come way down into the extent that random thoughts are coming up. Like I'm actually seeing them clearly and not being inveigled by them. And it's just like very equanimous. Yeah. Mm. And that's happened like once or twice in my life. 
And then I think, and it seems so obvious, like this is how you should live. Everything's fine. <laughs> and then, you know, uh, then I call my agent and complain about, you know, <laughs> the size of my book deal. I do wonder here, Dan, because, you know, you're you're very self-effacing about this, but you also have a very serious practice. Like you were saying, you've hardly missed a day in 10 years. And one of the core things that we explore in Buddhist practice is the nature of the self and releasing a certain degree of attachment to it. But at the same time, achievement-oriented pursuits, like there's a lot of selfing there. And so I'm wondering, have there been ways in which you've lightened up about that a little bit over time or you've seen that relax a little over time or is there more like this little core part of of personality or desire or whatever's going on there that like has has been a tough nut to crack i mean i think i have a lot more work to do i mm-hmm. mean this is this is old stuff you know yeah. Yeah. i sometimes think about there's different terminology for this but for millennia we've referred to our you know having demons and now in my modern psychotherapeutic context, we talk about the modular model of mind that mm-hmm. we have these different mm-hmm. modes that we go into or in internal family systems, we talk about the parts of the mind. But we have these characters who are competing for salience. Like if you ever shake up a magic eight ball, there are these tiles in there that are competing for the top spot that they had, you know, that you can see. It's a great metaphor. Uh, and that's what's happening in your mind in any given moment. And so, at least as I understand it, and... You know, of course, none of this is personal, but it feels personal in the moment. And especially when the angry tile has the steering wheel. And, you know, like, I, I think some of this, too, is like, you know, another way to think about this is ancestors. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I had a great grandfather who put his head in an oven because he lost the family fortune. Mm-hmm. And I never met this guy, but like, I think about that guy's with me. Mm-hmm. My wife and I have this great couples counselor. We're not like on the cusp of divorce or anything like that. We believe in marital counseling as a as a um, preventive measure. And we also, it's been fun for us, perversely. Maybe it's been mostly fun for my wife because she wins every single argument uh-huh. in, in the couples counseling. <laughs> but anyway, we have this great couples counselor. His name is Michael Vincent Miller. He, he's uh, written books. You can go check him out. And he said something recently, like he said, when the ghosts are in charge, you are well and truly fucked. Mm. And that's just the, you know, like when my... Other grandfather, not great grandfather, but my, I have another grandfather who was just like a mean guy. And when he's pissed, it's, you know, nothing's much is going to happen. And so, yeah, I've had glimpses and I get a glimpse daily in my practice of how impersonal this is. But we're talking about millennia of conditioning here. Sure. And so I don't, you know, I don't know if anybody fully enlightened. My job is to interview meditation teachers over on my podcast. And so I've met them, most of them, and I'm close with a lot of them. And I've seen them lose their tempers. You know, it doesn't happen much. They're much less likely to do it, certainly, than I am. Sure. But it's, you know, I think full enlightenment is a tough one to achieve. I really want to follow up on this intersection of having wholesome desires, you know, pursuing wholesome ends with wholesome means without it being attached to the result. That seems like the sweet spot. Okay, hard to sustain, right? And I think about experiences I've had rock climbing where I totally went for it and I was okay with not succeeding. Part of the fact that it was so improbable to be able to climb something made it basically okay that I wasn't going to succeed at it. That that combination, that that sort of sweet spot. And I think about your own work and uh, people you know, I'm really interested in what are the factors? Oh. <laughs> in really practical terms, that people can cultivate inside themselves that enable people. I think uh, I thought of teaching a workshop called Buddhist Aggressiveness is Not an Oxymoron or Buddhist Passion is Not an Oxymoron. Like, how do we be passionate, including for social justice, without getting hijacked by it all, right? And uh, while also not being afraid, as I've, I've watched the human potential movement in the meditation world for 50 years easily now. I started when I was pretty young. And um, I've just seen a lot of fear of, of certain kinds of fieriness or intensity or, or really caring about something because that could then take people down the slippery slope that's problematic. So how do we find ourselves in that sweet spot where we can be both passionate with purpose while being at peace with what happens? And I wondered, what takes do you have about that? Yeah, I mean, I could only say what's worked for me. I think in my experience, it's easier to be passionate 
while not being attached to the results in a context like rock climbing or I play the drums and like it's fun to try to play Tom Sawyer, but the song by Rush, but it's basically impossible for me at 52. I think even Neil Peart, the drummer who played it, stopped playing it so fast as he got older. Like it, it's not going to happen probably, but it's kind of fun to think about. Oh, can I, you know, can I huh. get there or maybe even do 10 seconds of it? And, but I don't care really like whether I get there, it's fun. I'm doing it just for the, but when my, when you're talking about my career, yeah. it's, it's, yeah. or parenting, it's much harder. Parenting is actually oddly easier in some ways. I mean, it's not easy, but in some ways, the the place where I get stuck the most is career stuff. And so I I think these practices of meditation where you're systematically sort of undermining the core optical delusion of the mind, as Einstein called it, that there is some core self in there. Mm -hmm that any thought I have was manufactured by me solely and comes out of pure meanness when, of course, it just comes out of the void. So having that perspective drilled into your neurons on the regular is very helpful. And then I think accompanying that for me with practices designed to boost your warmth, again, in an omnidirectional kind of way toward others, including people who might be you might feel are obstacles toward your success and toward yourself, in my case, often the primary obstacle, uh. and developing the capacity for altruistic intent. And then I would say on top of all of that is not, and this is a mistake I've often made of like thinking that since I don't always feel altruistic, and I usually don't, that therefore I'm a monster, so that I'm just gonna, <laughs> you know, like, I, I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm incurable. Uh -huh. But that I'm just, I think that's a foolish approach or logic that I often employed internally because we're all just human and and the demons come in and hijack us at times and you're not going to have some perfect yeah. altruistic intent unless it's you're nature. like the Dalai Lama. Like mm. you quoted Utation. Yeah. yeah. It's all nature. Yes. Yeah. So kind of giving myself a break of, you know, doing my best to set an altruistic intent and recognizing that I can't be left out of the altruism. You know, I mean, I'm also, if you're dedicating your activities to the benefit of all beings everywhere, then you are one of those beings and you need to pursue your own interests too. And so it's all for me, a very tricky balance. Mm. And there's no, I have not found some clean formula for it, but this is a great problem to wrestle with. Well, mentioning the Dalai Lama, uh, you spent a few weeks around him not too long ago, particularly focused on this idea of altruism on the one hand and wise selfishness, for lack of a better way of putting it, on the other hand. Uh, was there anything that you really took away from that in particular? Well, I mean, the wise selfishness idea has just been super influential for me. Mm -hmm. It's the Buddhist, it's uh, Dalai Lama's phrase. And his argument is that we're all selfish by nature, but if you want to do selfishness well, you should develop the capacity to be compassionate and generous or altruistic mm. because that will make you happy. There are so many problems and so many bugs in the human operating system, but there's this incredible feature that I actually think is our way out of our problems. And the feature is that being decent and helpful makes you happy. Yeah. And that is a massively positive force. And so if, to the best of my ability, try to design my life around that. I fail all the time. What there's, somebody told me recently, somebody said, maybe on my show, I heard this expression, erring and erring, I walk the unerring path. Mm. Like the, there's no problem with the path here the, the, that I can see. Buddhism seems pretty clear and to the extent that I've, done it it seems to work at least this far in the path but you know i have lots of problems or i've i've lots of fallibility and and so just holding those two ideas in my head at the same time that i'm gonna try to be as generous and kind as possible because it's gonna make me happier and that's a very it's very much a virtuous cycle and i might i retain the capacity to be a schmuck if you like being well, I think you'll really enjoy the Dr. John Delaney show. Dr. John's show was recently in the top five of all podcasts on Apple Podcasts, which is just an incredible accomplishment, and it speaks to how much value people get out of the show. 
Dr. John has a PhD in counseling, and he's been working with people for over 20 years. And the show has a very cool format. Real people call into the show, and he walks them through how to navigate a tough situation related to common challenges. Maybe it's something related to their relationships, anxieties, or emotional well-being. He explores a lot of topics that are similar to what we talk about on this podcast, but while we can sometimes be pretty theoretical in nature, the format of John's show just creates a lot of directness and practicality to it. I think it's actually a really nice compliment to what we do here on Being Well. No matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Delaney Show is here for you. And if you ever need some advice, you know who to call. Listen to the Dr. John Delaney Show wherever you get your podcasts, or follow the link on our website. If you're like me, you've probably started to pay closer attention to your long-term health as you've aged. Turning 35 was a bit of a wake-up call for me, and I'm always looking for good sources of information, because it's often really difficult to separate fact from fiction when it comes to our physical health. We had Dr. Tim Spector on the podcast a few years ago. He's a professor of genetic epidemiology and the scientific co-founder at Zoe. And the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is truly one of the best resources out there when it comes to this stuff. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. And you don't have to just take my word for it. Avid podcast fan Stephanie's Apple Review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is a life-changing, science-based, myth-busting podcast. That's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others transforming their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had an extra hour in your day? We're all looking for more time, but time for what? It's easy to waste time doing the things that don't really matter, and it can sometimes feel like we never have time for what does. Learning what we really value and making it a priority in our lives is something therapy can help us with. As you probably already know, I'm a huge believer in the power of therapy, and working with a therapist has made a huge difference in my life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeingWell today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash BeingWell. I feel uh, really touched by what you're saying because uh, a lot I've been thinking about lately, how we evolved in hunter-gatherer bands. And recent science is showing, as you may know, that among all the primate species, hundreds of them, humans evolved this one particular strategy at the foundation of social life in their hunter-gatherer bands called caring and sharing, distinct from holding and controlling. So rather than alpha dominance styles, compassion and justice. But then, of course, with large populations and agriculture and so forth, we have concentrations of wealth and power. And so then most of our politics for the last 10,000 years has reverted to that more primitive strategy of alpha dominance. Okay. But the good news, like you're getting at it, is that it's actually remarkable how happy it makes us to be of benefit to others and, you know, how happy we can get for the sake of others, you know, kind of cavelling about them or just being glad that they're doing well. And I don't know, I just want to kind of want to put a bow around what you said there as something really important, including appreciating and kind of marking that experience inside ourselves with mindful awareness and really making room for it and and, uh, nourishing it that gladness for the welfare of others and how happy it does make us, as you said, to be basically just decent and supportive of other people. What you said about uh, marking it, it strikes me as important. Yeah. Because we're all doing decent and sometimes extraordinary things all the time. But if you don't take it in, and that doesn't mean you have to tell yourself a story about how great you are and overlook all of your flaws. I mean, just yeah. actually feel how good it feels yeah. to do something like hold the door open for somebody, right? If you just mindful while you're doing that, the brain is a pleasure-seeking machine. Yeah. It will look for more pleasure. And so you're enabling the virtuous cycle by doing that. And, you know, the Joseph Goldstein, the great meditation teacher who I referenced earlier, 
has a great story about how I can't remember. He was struggling in some way on a meditation retreat. And his teacher said, contemplate your sila. Sila is the ancient Buddhist term for ethical conduct. In other words, he was saying, the teacher was saying to Joseph, you know, just consider all the good things you've done. And Joseph really struggled with that. He was like, oh, is he saying that I'm a bad person or is he wants me, does he want me to tell myself I'm a great person? No, he just wants, he, what he wanted was for you to be aware of how your own capacity for decency and kindness and how good that feels to remember it and how that can calm the mind and prepare you for meditation. And it can incentivize you toward more positive behavior. Well, something that I'm curious about here, Dan, is we're talking about these various soft and fuzzy emotional experiences. And I think that you're, like me, as you've said during this conversation, a pretty rational person who's self-described as an anti-sentimentalist. But, and correct me if I'm wrong here, I, I think that you're working on a book about love right now. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a topic that can get treacly in a hurry. And so I'm wondering, as somebody who has more of that kind of rationalist orientation, what about the subject is drawing you and where you found your interest in it? Well, from a crass entrepreneurial standpoint, the fact that love gets talked about in extremely annoying ways yeah. is very good for me. Sure. Because totally. it's an opening. I mean, yeah. it was why I wrote a book about mindfulness, because I was like, oh, well, this is really helpful. And these books are very annoying. And I was like, all right, I can drop the F-bomb uh, and tell very, you know, tell a lot of cocaine stories. And that's an <laughs> opening. Um I could just write the not annoying version and I'm good to go. Yes. And and to be clear, I'm being a glib because the books on Buddhism and med many of them are actually excellent. Mm -hmm. And they were serving a, a, an audience that I was just trying to enlarge the audience. Yeah. And that, that similarly with love. And by love, I mean it in the most capacious sort of broad understanding. I think of love not just as the narrow band of romantic love, but as the human capacity to give a shit, the human capacity to care, which is deeply wired into us through evolution that Rick referred to. We are a social species. Anybody who's ever listened to a TED talk has heard that notion that we are designed to collaborate, cooperate, and communicate. And when you are aligned with your design in that way, it feels good. And when you're acting in ways that are aligned with how you're designed, it, it, it feels good. And so what I'm trying to do is to talk about this, about love in a, with a little bit more humor and telling embarrassing stories and evidence and then very simple evidence-based practices. You know, among them would be loving kindness or compassion practice, mm -hmm. which has been studied extensively in the labs and shown to have um, psychological and physiological benefits. Um, but also uh, communication skills that I've really over the over the past couple of years gotten very interested in, in learning about um, uh, skills designed to reduce your bias, which I think is very important if you want to exist in a multicultural world, in a tribalistic world. So there's a whole family, a whole suite of skills that are available to anybody and that don't you don't have to you know, be a Buddhist or anything like that. And these are evidence-based skills that I'm just trying to wrap up under the provocative name of love. Mm. And in this book that I'm, that's a never-ending writing process. Uh, I would also add into the skills, self-compassion. You know, the, the, there's this whole booming area of science around treating, you know, not kicking your own ass and, uh, or having your own back, uh, pioneered by people like Kristen Neff, from the University of Texas at Austin. Yeah. And these practices can seem to somebody like me just extremely off-putting, you know, putting your hand on your heart and talking to yourself the way you would talk to a good friend. But the data is there to su strongly suggest that it's extremely helpful. And I've tried it and it really does work. And it's, it's the notion is very compelling that we have this negativity bias. We evolved to like look for threats and to criticize ourselves. And it's aided and abetted by a culture that's trying to make us think that we're not enough unless we look like our favorite Instagram influencer or we're never really complete until we make that next purchase. And so there are a lot of inputs internally and externally incentivizing us to to really treat ourselves like garbage and you can counter program against that mm. and it doesn't mm -hmm. mean staring in the mirror and telling yourself how awesome you are which you know fine if you want to do that that's fine it's as simple though as just talking to yourself the way you would talk to a friend and if you could just get into that habit 
it's extremely helpful. And again, you you can take my word for it or you can look at the data. Yeah. So there are these kind of, um, I'm going to radically overgeneralize here and break all of love into three categories in terms of the subjects that people talk about with it, where there are these two that get a lot of airtime. And the first is like improving your capacity to be a loving person. Like, hey, asshole, don't be so much of a dick to other people. Okay, fine. Then there's the second category of here's how you become a more lovable person whether that's a more desirable partner, working on communication skills, all of that good stuff. But then there's this third category that is often really, really tough for people, and it's exactly what you're describing. It's the ability to like receive the feeling of love itself, which for me was a, a long adventure that is still in process. And I think that it's what a lot of people really struggle with, whether they're doing a self-compassion practice or somebody just says a nice thing to them and they don't immediately deflect it with humor or turn it down, leave it at the door, you know, slam the door in their face, whatever they're doing. And so I'm wondering how you've practiced with that, if assuming that you have, and like what you've done there, what you've seen be really helpful for people. I would add a fourth category, by right. the way, which is the capacity to have benevolent attitude toward all beings everywhere. Sure. Yeah. Right? I think in Greek it's called agape, you know, yeah. sort of universal love and which again to anti-sentimentalists can sound like really the like the worst. But <laughs> that is a skill you can develop and it's all one thing. Mm, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's all one thing. You can divide it up, you can taxonomize it as much as you want, but it's all the capacity yeah. to care. Yeah. Right. It's all this mammalian care system that we've been imbued with. And so I think it's like you should do cross training. Hmm. Physical fitness is all one thing, but you can, you know, you can do cardiovascular work, you can do uh, mus muscle work, you can do stretching, but it's all about getting the body to be as healthy as possible. And this is about one massive aspect of our mental capacity that should be trained. And so, yes, I do think it's helpful to break it down in categories, and there are lots of ways to slice it. And I think you're absolutely correct that one of the hardest is either being supportive to ourselves or allowing how many times have has somebody said something nice to me? I have people come up to me all the time and tell me, Oh, your book, whatever change your life. And I'll be like, Oh yeah, it's a good insomnia cure or whatever. Some you know, <laughs> deflecting all the time instead of being like, thank you. I really yeah. appreciate that. Yeah. What's going on there. And I think the causes are many and they include some of the things we talked about before that we're in a culture that kind of, encourages us to be like massively self-promotional and massively self-deprecating at the same time. And it's just very confusing. And And I think an antidote is the stuff we're talking about with self-compassion. Again, pioneered by Dr. Kristen Neff and her colleague, Dr. Chris Germer. You know, they've demonstrated through just a lot of work in the labs that, you know, if you can send yourself benevolent wishes and talk to yourself the way you would talk to a good friend. And again, this is not, you know, Stuart Smalley from SNL saying, you know, you're good enough, you're strong enough, and gosh darn it, people like you. It's more like, hey, dude, yeah, you screwed up last night at the dinner party. You shouldn't have said X or Y thing. It's fine. But people do that all the time. And right now, there are probably millions of people who are feeling regret over some dumb thing they said last night. So you're not alone. And, uh, you know, generally speaking, you're, you're actually a really good friend to people and you can go apologize and it's, it's all good. You're good. Mm. That just a dialogue like that is massively helpful in my experience. And again, according to the, to the studies. I'm really curious, Dan, I don't mean to belabor this, but what have you done that's made that more approachable for you? Suffer. It's a good one word answer. It's motivating. Yeah. Pain is motivating for sure. I gave a TED talk about this, and it's definitely the the plot of the next book that I'm writing. But I got a 360 review a few years ago in 2018, at which point I was a full-fledged quasi-meditation guru. You know, uh, I had 10% Happier had come out four years before that. and But I got a 360 review, which is like an anonymous survey of your boss's peers and direct reports. And I added in my wife and my brother and some meditation teachers. So I did the, I really went for it. And it was not good. It was not good. And I was totally humiliated and demoralized. And I've spent five years, I think the fifth anniversary of that 360 is coming up 
in like a week or two doing a ton of work. I was highly incentivized to do a ton of work. Yeah. In part because I was really embarrassed and, and I really wanted to have better relationships. And because I, I realized, well, this is a good book. Mm. So let's be honest about motivations. By the way, that's another important love skill, I think, to be clear about really why you're doing what you do and to and to engage in practices to try to skew you toward the more altruistic. Like I wake up in the morning, if I can remember it, I try to say like, may everything I do today be a benefit to other people. And then, of course, I do a bunch of selfish shit, but, but you know, I'm setting the direction. Richie Davidson, who's a great neuroscientist, talks about, you know, just literally dedicating everything you do throughout the course of the day. I get on the exercise bike, you know, I dedicate this to the, it's so, super cheesy and nobody has to see you do it, but, it, but it, it just starts to shift the mind toward pulling your head out of your ass, yeah. you know, and that is super helpful. And so anyway, that, to answer the question you asked, the, I was very embarrassed by the 360. And I saw very clearly as I was reading it that, oh, yeah, my life would be better if I addressed this stuff. We know from the data, you know, we, we have all these optimizers. I'm an optimizer. I'm a recovering optimizer. I was like, I wear the ring that told me how much I slept and <laughs> uh, count my calories and um, c constantly exercising and was never satisfied with my form on whatever, you know, like I went and had swim lessons and I would have a trainer to help me lift and blah, blah, blah. And I'm, I'm still do some of that stuff and because I do think health and fitness is very important. Uh, I, I'm, I'm way less maniacal about it now. And what we what comes screaming out of the data, and Dr. Hansen can confirm or deny this, but is that if you are if you're truly an optimizer and you care about health, happiness, and longevity, the number one variable is the quality of your relationships. Yeah. And how often are you hearing about that in you know on Instagram? Mm -hmm. And so that that really is kind of what I'm going for in this book. Dan, I, I don't know why I want to ask this, but like. Are you happy with how you've changed over the last five years? Like, are you pleased with that? Very. I mean, I'm not, I'm not complacent. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I definitely, well, maybe I am complacent or I try not to be complacent. I don't, I'm not telling myself a story about like having yeah. achieved perfection at all, but I would rank that 360 review right below marriage and the birth of my son on the list of most important things that ever happened to me. Mm. And I am so grateful it happened. Uh, and I got another awesome. one a couple of years later that was completely different. And and that was not, I mean, it was pleasing in, for some crass reasons because it felt good for my ego. It yeah. was also like, oh, this is a good ending for the book and <laughs> all of that stupid stuff. But the But the real reason was that <laughs> it just was like, my life is so much better. Yeah. It, it's so much better. And it's not like my life has no conflict in it. And that's a whole other discussion because I think there's good conflict and bad conflict. And there are folks who study this who talk about that. But I even have bad conflict in my life, for sure. And I can still get stubborn and wrapped around the axle and all that stuff. It's just that there's so much less of it. That's great. I've been really struck so many times by back in the human potential movement days that I was in, we would talk about your cringeometer. What are the things that really make you go, ah, right? And for most people, dropping into being loving doesn't tend to move the needle very much, but dropping into receiving being loved, whoa, tends to really move that needle for all kinds of people, even though it's what we long for, right? And I have, um, I've just seen it again and again that when people actually increase their capacity to receive the love that's there, actually there, and, and subtler forms of it, like friendship and respect and appreciation, things like that, when they increase their capacity to let it in and kind of rest in it, they become less of a savage beast. <laughs> you know, they, they chill out more and they become a lot more generous toward other people. Maybe that's the kind of an example, I guess, of what the Dalai Lama was talking about, wise selfishness, that it's good for others to let the sense of being loved really land inside yourself. Yeah, I think that's probably, I think that's probably true. And... I think most people can drop into being loving, but how attuned are they to how good that feels? Mm. You know, are you being mindful while you're doing it so mm. that you can incentivize yourself to do more of it? And how much are you pushing the boundaries? Can you feel some 
doesn't have to be warmth per se, but maybe just some like empathy or compassion or understanding for the people on social media you deeply disagree with. Hmm. There's more work to be done on all of these. And, it, and, and, and you don't have to be a Buddhist monk to be doing this work. And it's all in your interest because self-interest and other interests, it's all one thing anyway, <laughs> you know, like seen from a, a perspective, the right perspective. And, but yes, in terms of being willing to accept other people's love, that's really challenging for a lot of people. And there are a lot of lonely people who don't have that much access to yeah. other people's love. And, you know, one of the really interesting pieces of advice that experts on loneliness, like our current Surgeon General, will say is that, you know, a, a great antidote is volunteer work. Because it will remind you, it's ennobling, it will remind you of your worthiness. And you're just like ginning up the, the love motor, you know? And you can do this stuff for yourself too. Like you, self-compassion is no joke. Like you can direct your mammalian care system at yourself. Yeah. That's a hack that is available to anybody. Yeah. So you've been very open during this, Dan, about how you've changed over time in different ways during this conversation about where you started, where you are now, how your practice has evolved, the things that are still true for you that started one way at the beginning, they're still that way right now, but hey, maybe you've got a little bit more space around them in a couple of different ways. And you're about 600-ish episodes, I think, into mm. the 10% Happier podcast. We're about 300-ish episodes into being well, so you've got us about doubled up there. And I'm really wondering, in all of these great conversations that you've had with people, because you've gotten to talk to just about everybody, is there a place where your view on a topic or an opinion that you had about something has really changed over that period of time, just based on those conversations? For sure, the emphasis on the gooey stuff. Mm, right? I think yeah. I went in really interested in first alleviating my own suffering, you know, just do, being less stressed. And then, and I, you know, in my first book, you can see there's a whole chapter on compassion. I love the title for that chapter, The Self-Interested Case for Not Being a Dick. Um, so like I, I, I wrote about it and I meant it, but I wasn't, it wasn't really like a big major force in my own practice or in my own motivations. So really embracing, there's a great line. I, it was not uttered to me directly. I heard it indirectly, but a meditation teacher is said to have said the following to a student who was complaining about the cheesiness of loving kindness and other and compassion oriented practices. And the line is, if you can't be cheesy, you can't be free. Mm -hmm. And that I think is the biggest change in the arc of my practice and life over time. And, and I also think like you can do this stuff without being cheesy. Yeah. You know, and I try to get more, I'm trying to get more comfortable with the cheesiness too, but you can do, you know, you, that doesn't have to be. And that, that's what I'm trying to model is that you can be, quote unquote, regular or normal and do this stuff. And it's really to your benefit. That's definitely been one of the biggest changes for me too in my time doing being well, is getting more mm. and more comfortable with the, the softer emotional underbelly part of the human experience as opposed to the more mm -hmm. top-down rational part. And I also yes. think that that's just a great place to end today's conversation. So Dan, thanks so much for doing this with us today. Before you get out of here, is there anything you would like to tell people about or anywhere where they can find you? Yeah, well, just the, thank you. Thanks, first of all, thank you for having me. Really appreciate it, it was super fun. And yeah, I got my own podcast called 10% Happier. Dr. Hansen's been on there. Yeah. So come check it out. Awesome. Thank you so much, man. Thanks, guys. We had a great time today talking with Dan Harris. And what really stood out to me throughout the conversation was how open and revealed Dan was with his own process and his internal world. He talked about receiving this 360 review that really shook him, his own experience with panic attacks, where he started with his mindfulness and meditation practice and where he has gone over time, and how throughout that process he's gotten more and more comfortable with the soft and vulnerable and gushy aspects of his experience while still retaining the rational, top-down, logical elements that made him really successful and achievement-oriented in the first place. And a lot of the conversation explored the balance of these seemingly opposite things, 
how we can be both equanimous and pursuit-oriented, how we can be warm and fuzzy and also rational and skeptical. And that was a kind of theme throughout our conversation, how we can bring together these aspects of ourselves, of our practice of the world around us, that can seem to be uh, opposites or diametrically opposed in some kind of way. But it's by including both of them that we can actually get closer to what we want to achieve. We began the conversation by talking about Dan's history with panic attacks and his recent resurgence of them having to do with tight and enclosed spaces, in other words, claustrophobia. And he talked about working with a therapist to do what's called graduated exposure, where you slowly increase the difficulty of the task that the person is facing, and you go through some resourcing and some processing around the experience afterwards. One of the things that Dan mentioned as being particularly useful for him was, of course, his meditative practice. And one of the things that I appreciated that Dan talked about was how all of this stuff still comes up for him. The anger still comes up with him, the frustration, the tight achievement orientation, the desire to accomplish something exactly the way that you want it to be accomplished. That's all still there. All of those aspects of personality are still very present for him, even after 20 years of practice that ranges from relatively serious to extremely serious. All of that stuff is still totally there for him. And I think that that's just such a humanizing part of all of this, where we really like to put people on pedestals or a lot of the uh, the mindfulness industrial complex out there is really oriented to presenting a certain kind of face on social media in different kinds of ways. And Dan just doesn't do that. He is very open about his own humanity, which I think is great and is completely needed inside of this space in general. We then talked for a little while about the time that he recently spent around the Dalai Lama and how that time focused on wise selfishness rather than idiot compassion. And the idea here is simply that altruism is almost always good for us too. When we are kind to others, it feels good to us. And this is a part of our programming that it is incredibly powerful to lean into because we like rewarding experiences. The brain is built to enjoy reward. So when we make an experience rewarding to us, we are likely to pursue more of it in the future. Now, one of the problems here is that we have an orientation toward negativity. The brain has a negativity bias. So we need to deliberately go out of our way to find those positive experiences and to really take them into us. And one example of this is altruism, being kind to other people in ways large and small. And it can be really difficult to take in the warmth that other people send our way or to send warmth to ourselves. In other words, self-compassion can be really tough for people. I know that very personally. But it can also be really hard to just say thank you and to let it sit in thank you without deflecting with humor or dismissing what you've done for somebody else. And yeah, of course, there's a healthy line there. We don't want to get wrapped up in some sense of our own holier-than-thouness or own goodness in a kind of distorted way. But one of the things that Rick says all the time is that for everyone who walked into his office and into his counseling room, probably 90% of the people needed to get better at feeling good about the good that they had done compared to maybe 10% of the people who could, you know, tone down the egoism a little bit. I then closed the episode by asking Dan about what he's taken away, what he's learned, how he's changed from the 600 or so episodes of the 10% Happier podcast. And I thought it was really great how he mentioned a greater kind of comfort and openness to those warm and fuzzy aspects of our experience, because that has totally been my sense as well, as myself being a pretty top-down, rational, skeptical kind of person. And so it was really cool to kind of get that reflection from him and one of the things that stands out to me, if you spend much time in the personal growthy space, is that it's really easy to dive into the emotional side of it and to say, oh, just feel all the feelings, go to the warm and fuzzy part, do all of that. But really what I find is that it's just about what your orientation is as a person. If you are a more logical, rational person, you kind of need to lean into more of the warm and fuzzies. If you're more of a warm and fuzzy person, you might be served by leaning into the more logical, rational side of the spectrum, which makes sense. As they say in Buddhist practice, it's about walking the middle path here. 
So I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation with Dan. Again, you can find his podcast literally everywhere. It's quite possibly the biggest mental health podcast in the world. It's 10% Happier. He's also the author of the book by the same name, and he is the co-founder of the 10% Happier Meditation app. If you've been listening for a while and you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so very simply by just subscribing to it right now, wherever you're listening to it now on, or you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast, and for just a few dollars a month, you can support the show and receive a whole bunch of bonuses in return. Until next time, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.